So just um, looping back to last time I was here at the end of June, I offered a few reflections on really in response to what was then the alive crisis of racism, which was occurring in parallel with the crisis of the coronavirus pandemic, which is ongoing, as is the ongoing environmental crisis, all of which are pretty deep-rooted, complex challenges for us to navigate on top of, or perhaps underneath, whatever other difficulties might be going on in our individual, personal and family lives. So tonight, as I said, I've been requested in some ways to go back to the basics, to revisit the core teachings of the Buddha, to develop that foundation of understanding, of wisdom and of practice that does help us to navigate these at times intense challenges and not only navigate them, but potentially transform them from obstacles into actual vehicles that can progress us along this path to freedom. So tonight I'm going to be exploring the path of transformation known as the Noble Eightfold Path, which is really at the heart of the Buddha's teachings. It's the core. And whether any of us here are consciously aware of it or not, all of us to some extent are already following this path, as you'll hear later on. And of course it does help to be more conscious about that, to be informed about what we're doing, why we're doing it, where all this is heading, so that our effort doesn't get derailed and we don't get lost in uh, um, detours that might seem alluring but end up wasting time and energy. So to just give some context of where this core teaching emerged from, it's said that after the Buddha attained complete awakening under the Bodhi tree, he spent seven weeks enjoying the bliss of that realization. And then he started to wonder about what to do with the rest of his life, because apparently at that point he was only 35. And he briefly considered teaching other people what he'd discovered, but his first thought was it would just be too hard, because it seemed to him that what he discovered was, was profound, it was subtle, and he just thought people are not going to get it. But fortunately for us, he did have second thoughts. He reconsidered because he started to recognize that not everyone was at the same stage of development. Some people did have more capacity to understand than others. Or as it says in the suttas, some had only a little dust in their eyes. So all of us here have only a little dust in our eyes or we wouldn't even be here this evening. So the Buddha decided that he would teach after all and he went off and found some of his former companions and he gave them his first discourse which is known as the setting the wheel of Dharma in motion. And it's in this first discourse where he set out the wheel of Dharma, he laid out the Noble Eightfold Path in the context of the Four Noble Truths. So this 
The Noble Eightfold Path is the fourth of the Four Noble Truths. And these Four Noble Truths are common. The one teaching that is common to every different school of Buddhism, whether it's Zen or Tibetan or Theravada, understanding the Four Noble Truths and more importantly, putting them into practice, actually living them, is the foundation of everything we're doing here. So, again, just for a little more context, at the time of the Buddha, the art and science of medicine, of healing, was just starting to develop. And at that time, medical people used a kind of a standard formula when they were working with their patients. It's a four-part model that was used to treat disease. So the first step was to diagnose the illness and its nature. The second step was to identify what was causing it. The third step was to work out a cure for it. And the fourth and final step was to recommend a treatment or bring, uh, suggest a prescription. So the Buddha was presented and saw himself as a kind of healer too, not so much for physical ailments, but you could say our existential ailments, our emotional and psychological stress, distress and suffering. So he adopted this same four-part method when he came up with the Four Noble Truths. So the first Noble Truth, pretty clearly, in order to cure our happiness, unhappiness, we first have to even recognize that we are unhappy. So the first noble truth is a pretty simple statement. Basically, it says there is dukkha. Dukkha translated as stress, distress, unsatisfactoriness, suffering. It might sound very simple, but it's also quite radical because... I think most of us, most of the time, and certainly in mainstream and society, are in denial of our suffering. So sometimes it can actually be a relief to hear, there is, there just is suffering, unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress. And on hearing that, we can recognize perhaps that it's, it's not our personal failing that things don't always work out the way we want them to, or that we're not happy 100% of the time. It's because of this first noble truth that life at times is unsatisfactory. Now, just to say we can hear this word suffering and think, well, yeah, there are aspects of my life that aren't going so well, but compared to the bigger picture of what other people are dealing with, I, I couldn't really say I'm suffering. But this is one unfortunate um, result of the Pali word dukkha being translated as suffering. Because in fact the word dukkha actually has a much broader range of meanings than the English word suffering suggests. So it covers a whole spectrum. And at one end of the spectrum it does include the most intense challenges of life. So when the Buddha defined the first noble truth, he said, suffering as a noble truth is this. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow 
lamentation, pain, grief and despair a suffering. Association with the loathed is suffering. Dissociation from the loved is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In short, suffering is the five categories of clinging objects. Now, we could spend the next ten hours going into just that one statement, but what I want to highlight is that these, we can probably pretty commonly agree, are all obvious forms of suffering. We experience them in our individual lives and on a society-wide level. But this Pali word dukkha also includes, at the other end of the spectrum, not just the most extreme anguish, but just that basic discomfort or dis-ease that comes from having a human body, a human heart, a human mind. So some translators have made the point that the word dukkha comes from terminology for an axle hold. So an axle hold which is not in the center of the wheel. So in India at that time, those wooden carts had solid wooden wheels. And if the axle didn't fit properly, you got a bumpy ride. And so this is the unsatisfactoriness translation of dukkha. And it includes just that basic sense of something being not quite right. Which, if we look, for most of us, is actually most of the time. So I like to check, you know, even right now, can any one of you right now say you are 100% comfortable, happy, and at ease? Anybody? 100%? No, me neither. <laughs> Often, if we look, there's some slight sense of, oh, if I'd only I'd had time for a cup of tea before we started, then I'd be happy. Or if I wasn't so sleepy and tired, then I'd be happy. Or if I didn't have to be staring at the computer screen again, then I'd be happy. Or if she'd stop going on and on about suffering, then I'd be happy. You know, there's always something that's not quite right. Does that make sense? This too is dukkha. So having named the problem with the first noble truth... The next step in this formula is to identify the cause of dukkha. So the second noble truth tells us why we're unhappy. It says there is a cause of dukkha, craving, craving for sensuality, for becoming and for non-becoming. Now again, this word craving in English sounds very heavy very strong. And again, we might think, well, yes, sure, there's things I want, but I wouldn't call it craving. But again, this word craving refers to that whole spectrum of just the most intense addiction at one end to just that basic wanting things to be a bit different, to be a bit more comfortable, to have things always be pleasant and nice and enjoyable. And in that process, often, we develop at the center of it a very strong, solid, fixed sense of me. And that's the craving for becoming, the craving for, be for being, for being somebody in the middle of it all. 
So this term craving refers to the energy of wanting and of becoming, of continuing, but it also includes the energy of not wanting. So any energy momentum of rejecting, resisting, struggling with experience. And this feeds the craving too of non-becoming or non-being. And the craving for non-being is just that feeling of, oh, I've had enough. Make it stop. Make it go away. Can't I just go back to bed and pull up the covers? And some of us may have experienced that, you know, at the moment in relation to the news, the 24-hour news cycle, pretty overwhelming. And we might directly contact that feeling of, oh, enough. Can I just pull up the covers and forget about all of this bad news out there? And it's true that hearing all this talk about suffering and stress and distress and unsatisfactoriness and clinging and craving, we might start to feel a bit discouraged. And it's true that the Buddhism is sometimes misperceived as having a pessimistic view of the world. But that's only true if we look at just the first two noble truths. Because the last two, the third and the fourth truths, are about the end of suffering. They're about happiness, ease and peace. So coming back to the medical model, the third noble truth is that there is a cure for dukkha. It's a treatable condition. And the text says, cessation of suffering as the noble truth is this. It is the remainderless fading and ceasing, giving up, relinquishing, letting go and rejecting of that craving. So letting go of craving is how we cure ourselves of dukkha. And in one level, that's pretty obvious. If craving makes you miserable, then just stop it. Stop clinging. Let go of craving. Anyone manage to do that? Uh, maybe momentarily, but again, you know, it's not as easy as it might sound. And having said that, I'm confident that every one of us here have uh, tasted at least moments of ease, of peace, of relief, of freedom. Otherwise, we wouldn't be motivated to continue with this path. And perhaps these moments of ease happened on retreat. Perhaps they happened during your daily life practice. But either way, it's worth looking out for them, savoring them, recognizing them, so that they act as positive reinforcement, as tangible, direct reminders of where all of this practice is heading. Even so, the Buddha understood that for most of us, much of the time, just telling ourselves to let go and experience freedom isn't going to work. He recognized that we need help to actually put this truth into practice. So the fourth noble truth, which lays out the noble eightfold path, there is a practice that leads to the end of dukkha. So this is the prescription the prescription is the Noble Eightfold Path of right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, 
right mindfulness, right concentration. This is a prescription to cure our unhappiness and following it ultimately leads to Nibbana, complete freedom of heart and mind. Okay, so we finally got to the Noble Eightfold Path, which of course is a whole lifetime of exploration. So tonight I'm just going to give a brief description of each of these path factors to get us started, and then we might explore them in a little more depth in future talks. But before I go there, I just want to acknowledge that for many of us, particularly when we first hear these different sets of numbered lists, the that approach can be a bit off-putting. So it might be helpful to understand why the Buddha used these numbered lists so much. As many of you know, in his day, information was transmitted orally through reciting, memorizing, speaking, listening and hearing. And the teachings didn't even start to be written down until about 500 years after the lifetime of the Buddha. So these numbered lists were a device to help the listener and the speaker remember the teachings more easily. But for most of us today, at least for myself, there's a tendency to just disconnect when we hear these lists. The four this, the five that, the six other, the eight and so on. And it can be hard to engage with what sounds like just an inventory of abstract concepts. So recently I've been thinking of these numbered lists as being like a bit like camping food. You know those packets of freeze-dried stew and veggies and things you can get to take camping or hiking or cycling? They're dehydrated, so they're light and they're portable. We can take them anywhere. But in that dehydrated form, they're not edible. They're dry, they're not nutritious. So we have to unpack them. We have to mix them with water. We have to heat them. So they get reconstituted into nourishing food. And this process is similar to what we need to do with these, the numbered list, particularly of the Eightfold Path. We take these key ingredients and we explore them in the context of our own lives. We metaphorically chew on them, take them in, digest them, and then they start to make sense and become something to actually live by. And this is the process that I'm inviting us into tonight. So first to say a little bit about this word right that prefaces each of the path factors. Right is the most common translation of the Pali word Samma, S-A-M-M-A. And in some ways it's an unfortunate translation because when we hear the word right in English, it can immediately bring up connotations of right and wrong, good and bad, and so on. And it can reinforce pretty binary, dualistic, even moralistic thinking. But according to Gil Fransdell, this word sama can also mean proper or complete or in harmony. And he says, when right is the translation, it's useful to think of it as meaning appropriate, as when we speak of having the right tool for a particular task. And because the path is made up of practices rather than beliefs, right does not refer to truths that we're obliged to adopt 
or to moralistic judgments of right and wrong. So as we come to this first path factor of right view, we can experiment with thinking of it as appropriate view or wise view. And with wise view, we get the sense that the view we're cultivating here is intended to lead to wisdom. So there are many different nuances to right or wise view, and I'll come back to them later. But one basic definition to get us started is that it's the understanding of what leads to harm and what leads away from harm, to ease, to peace, to freedom. So that's a very basic working definition of right view, just to get us started. And then the second path factor of right intention, or wise intention, is also sometimes translated as right thought or right resolve. And again, the English phrase right thought can seem sound a little Orwellian, you know, think like this or else. But it's actually... Uh, it has quite a specific definition as intention and it's a three-part set of intentions. So it's the intention of renunciation or relinquishment. In other words, to live simply, frugally. It's the intention of goodwill or metta. And it's the intention of harmlessness, non-cruelty, sometimes translated as compassion. So this is where the heart qualities start to come into this Noble Eightfold Path. And the intention of right intention is to overcome the wrong intention of greed, of hatred, and of harmfulness. So we're starting to bring in an ethical motivation and that feeds into the next factor, which is right or wise speech. When our minds have cultivated right intention to some extent, then what comes out of our mouths is more likely to be in the terrain of wise speech. And on the most basic level, this means not lying. But the Buddha refined it to also include abstaining from not only false speech, but slanderous speech, harsh speech, and idle chatter. So right speech is looking at the realm of our verbal expression. And then right action, which is the next one, is referring to our bodily expression, our behavior in the world. And it's also our relational practice, because we're asked to abstain from taking life, from taking what is not given or not stealing, and to abstain from sexual misconduct. So this is how we engage and interact with each other and shaping that in an ethical direction towards non-harming. And then, as a further extension of right action, we get to right livelihood. So this is how we earn our living, and also how we spend our time, whether we paid for it or not. So volunteer work, if we're retired, if we're caregivers, how we spend our time. 
And Gil Fransel includes in that category what we produce and what we consume. So it's really you know, feeding into our impact on the planet. So right livelihood is defined at the very minimum as making our living through legal means, making it honestly without trickery or deceit, and in ways that don't cause harm to ourselves or to others. So having laid out how we live in the world, the last three of the path factors are generally more about our meditation practice. So the sixth one is right effort. And this is about the wise application of energy in our meditation practice. So we're being invited to make the effort to overcome unskillful mental states and strengthen skillful mental states. So in the context of Vipassana practice, it's about letting go of the hindrances and strengthening the awakening factors. So then the seventh path factor is right mindfulness, the mental faculty known as sati in Pali. And I'm sure you all have a basic definition of mindfulness, but it's the capacity to be present, to know what we're doing as we're doing it without reactivity, with clarity. And as most of you know, these days mindfulness has become completely mainstream. And so it's good to be clear that not everything that's labeled as mindfulness is necessarily right mindfulness in the context of these teachings because not everything out there is using mindfulness with the aim of the deepest possible freedom of heart and mind. So I've seen, especially in the U.S., advertisements for uh, mindfulness um, that say things like boot camp for goddesses where fluff meets tough. Get your mindfulness on. Or tango with the Buddha, sensuality registered trademark. So there's all these different ways that mindfulness is being commodified and co-opted in a way that would not meet the definition of what we're looking for here. It's right for mindfulness to be right mindfulness. It's practiced in the context of all the other path factors. So it's developing wisdom and compassion. Likewise, the factor of right concentration and concentration here is the usual translation of the Pali word samadhi. But again, we get into difficulties of translation because in English, this word concentration sounds like forced, fixed, narrowed attention. And if we practice in that way, it tends to tighten the mind, which totally gets in the way of developing genuine samadhi which is more about relaxing, releasing, letting go so that the mind gathers, unifies, becomes very steady, stable and undistracted. And when these states of samadhi are attained in the form of the, the jhanas, they can be intensely pleasurable. But again, what makes right samadhi right is it's developed in the service of wisdom and not just as a pleasant end in itself. 
Okay, are you with me so far? This is a bit of a whirlwind tour, just a brief overview, just to give you context. So what I want to point out in that list is that this path that the Buddha laid out is a very comprehensive one. It includes every aspect of our lives. Every aspect of our lives can be developed with one of these eight path factors. And I want to highlight that because I think historically in the way the practice has come to the West so far, at least in terms of lay practice, there's been a lot more emphasis on the meditative aspects of the path, the mindfulness and the concentration, and not so much emphasis on the other six. But we really need all eight of them to be equally well developed if our practice is going to deepen and bring us the ease and the happiness and the freedom that the Buddha is promising. So I think most of us understand that there's a connection between our meditation practice and our daily life. And often that's what drew, drew us to practice in the first place. There might have been some hope that if we meditated, we'll be able to live our lives with more ease. Maybe we'll experience less stress at work or we'll learn how to speak more kindly to our kids or we'll be more creative in our uh, field of the arts. But what most people are less clear about is that the relationship works the other way too. Our meditation practice doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in the context of everything else that we're doing with our lives. So this understanding of right view means we need to pay attention to how we engage with each other and the world so that we can live our daily lives with more awareness and that then improves our meditation. So we need to improve the quality of our daily life in order to support our meditation, which in turn improves the quality of our daily life. As we get more skilled at this, we waste less of our mental and emotional energy on dramas of various kinds, so that when we come to meditate, we're able to settle the mind more quickly, more easily. As a result... We can see more clearly what we're doing and its effect on ourselves and on others. And that clear seeing feeds back into how we show up in the world. Our behavior becomes more refined and so the path continues to unfold. Not so much a longer, nice, straight, linear line, but more as a kind of a spiraling, circling upwards like a spring. So the Noble Eightfold Path is the Buddha's prescription for completely curing ourselves of unhappiness. And like any good medicine, it doesn't only work in one way. It's a very holistic treatment that it works on several different aspects of our lives at once. And in the context of the Noble Eightfold Path, the path factors are designed to be applied in three distinct areas of our lives. And these three areas are known as sila, samadhi, and panya, or ethics, concentration, or meditation, generally, and wisdom. And these three aspects of the path are said to be like the three legs of a tripod. 
And from that metaphor, we can see we need all three legs of the tripod to be equally well developed for it to function. So the ethics leg is made up of wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. The concentration or meditation leg of the tripod is wise effort, wise mindfulness and wise concentration. And then the wisdom leg is wise view and wise intention. So as I mentioned earlier, because many of us did come to this path through meditation, many of us have tended to pay a lot more attention to just that leg of the tripod and quietly or maybe even deliberately ignored the other two of ethics and wisdom. For for example, some people just love silent meditation. They just want to be on retreat all the time and to withdraw from the world with all of its messy, complicated, sometimes painful interpersonal stuff of relationships and families and jobs and responsibilities. So some people overdevelop the meditation leg at the expense of the others. Other people are the opposite. They might be so completely enmeshed in their daily activities that even the idea of going on retreat and cultivating deeper meditation seems quite alien or foreign. Other people are very drawn to the ideas of Buddhism. They love the concepts and the philosophy and having intellectual discussions and debates, but it stays on a head level and doesn't engage with practical reality or daily life. So most of us have a bias in one direction or the other, and for that reason it can be helpful from time to time, to do a kind of a practice inventory, to look at your own Dharma practice in terms of these three aspects of the path and see, is there one that could use some strengthening? So, for example, if you've done a lot of silent retreats, but you don't have much understanding of the actual teachings yet, you might look at doing some study courses to get more understanding of the framework that guides and refines all of this practice in the direction of freedom. And that's actually one of the silver linings of the pandemic situation is that there is so much study and retreat available online these days. On the other hand, if you've done a lot of study but you don't have a stable meditation practice then you might plan on doing a retreat at some stage and again maybe in the short term that could be online but to take a strategic approach and plan to do more retreats throughout the year other people tend to put a lot more of their energy perhaps into social justice activism or climate activism or doing prison or hospice work and so on But if we don't have the capacity to regularly still the heart and mind through meditation, it's very easy to burn out and fall into grief and despair, particularly at the moment, the state of the world. So again, making the effort, right or wise effort, to balance these three and bring in meditation where needed, study where needed, pay attention to daily life. All of that helps us come back to the balance of the middle way. 
and then we can develop the full strength of all eight of these path factors together. Now perhaps for some of you that might sound a bit daunting, but one reason I wanted to at least touch into these eight factors is that as we get more familiar with them, we start to see that actually we're already developing and have already developed them more than we might realize. So it's a very simple, immediate example. Just the fact that all of you chose to come to this session tonight instead of watching TV or whatever else you might have done, right there you're strengthening the wisdom factors of wise view and wise intention, the first two factors of the path. And I'm guessing that most of you have a commitment to non-harming. Maybe you take the precepts regularly. So you're already, to some extent, developing the ethical factors of wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. And then when we meditate together, as we're going to do in a moment, we're developing the samadhi factors of wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. So just in this one session this evening, all of these eight factors are being strengthened to some degree. And to hopefully land that even more, what I'd like to do now in a moment is shift into a short guided meditation that's more of a kind of a contemplation slash investigation of these Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path, so we get to tune into it a little more directly in the immediacy of our own experience. And then after that, there'll be a bit of time for questions and reflections. So thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.